Well, from the get-go, I'm going to ask you to turn to the right place, not to me, but to God's Word. So if you would turn with me, if you would, to the book of Revelation, the uh, Revelation of Jesus Christ, as it's called, Revelation chapter 1. Some of you have asked if I could speak up or at least not, you know, let my voice get too soft at times, and I will work on trying to project more, and I'm also getting a better microphone that I hope will help. We'll see. But uh, it reminds me of an elderly man who thought his wife was losing her hearing. I don't know if you've ever heard this story. So he went about 20 feet behind her and asked, can you hear me, sweetheart? And uh, no reply. Well, moved 10 feet and inquired again. No reply. Five feet next to her, uh, few in, uh, and not a word from her when he asked. Well, a few inches behind her ear, he asked, can you hear me now, honey? And she says, for the fourth time, yes. <laughs> this old age thing is interesting, isn't it? Especially for our relationship with our spouses. A whole new ball game. It's a challenge. Well, hopefully you'll hear me today, you know, before the fourth time. But uh, Julie and I could not be more excited to be here. Um, uh, we're not just excited because we love Colorado and we don't need a sun lamp anymore from Vermont. <laughs> Nor is it that we finally get some Tex-Mex food after two years in a place that never even heard of it. <laughs> now, as I wrote... The session, the day after the vote, we're so looking forward to partnering with you, that is the elders, in behalf of this dear body of believers, the church of God which he purchased with his own blood, Acts 20, 28. I don't know what else is more worthy of a lifetime devotion, given his devotion to you. We're convinced that he has great things in store, I told them, and counted a privilege to be involved at this formative time in the history of FEC. Indeed. A transition like this, hard though it can be, given what you've been through, can be a formative time that can lay the foundation for generations. That's what we found at IPM. It's a window of opportunity, and today I'd like to get off, as I said at the beginning, on the right foot from the get-go by not turning to me, but by turning together to him. By turning from every pastor past, present, and future, and especially from this interim pastor, to Christ alone. We see him like nowhere else in Scripture in the book of Revelation, and so we're going to start by spending two weeks here. Have you ever noticed the first five words of this book? You might call it a self-titling book, though usually people don't get the clue, and they go on to focus on the prophecy and the story and, like, ignore the hero of the story. The first five words are the title. The revelation of Jesus Christ, because he is what it's ultimately all about. He is the source and center of this book, just like he's the source and center of our faith. Revelation really is the fifth gospel because it's about the person and work of the glorified Christ. And so it's an apocalyptic book because it's an apocalypse, ultimately, of his glory, one that can invoke his presence in our emptiness as we just proclaim it. Like no other book in Scripture, it can bring the, the, the Lord of the Word through the Word of the Lord, the manifest presence of Christ himself to our empty hearts and to a church that's been emptied, and that's all we need. 
We need him to come like a light dawning on those who dwell in the shadow of death, Luke 1.78. We need him more than anything. We need, as it says elsewhere, for the sunrise from on high to visit us. And to that end, it says in Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Moving on to verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. That's interesting. He characterizes the Christian life as tribulation and perseverance and the kingdom is in the middle of it. That is, the king is in the middle of it who enables us to persevere through tribulation which is the characteristic of the Christian life. Brief but powerful statement. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. I heard behind me a loud voice, he said, like a sound of a trumpet, which means his voice, uh, it pierces, it penetrates, it comes in and provokes. Is that the Jesus we're preaching? Without pride, but without apology. This isn't gentle Jesus, meek and mild, you know, of watered-down American Christianity. He's not saying, there, there. No, this voice says, wake up. You've fallen asleep again. You've sunk back into complacency again. Maybe that happened to you before all this turmoil that he let in. Are you about to fall back into complacency again now that the new pastor is here? I I dearly hope not, because I need you. It's like John didn't know it, but now he knew he was like fast asleep all along compared to this being. And we're all like that. We're all hard of hearing, so he has to waken us again and again, not just through his word, but through his work in our lives. You might say that, that, that what you've been going through for the last year is like the blast of a trumpet, Even for the Apostle John, his closest friend, Christ's coming was a rude awakening. And what does he awaken us to? Well, John said, I turned, verse 12, more like I wheeled around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw the seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Let's stop right there. Essentially, John sums up this entire vision in chapter 1 with a single description that he's like a son of man. He's saying, if it's possible that there's a son of man, this is him. The son of man, which is the translation the NASB gives in the margin. You might say John sums up not just this vision, but the book of Revelation, the whole of the revelation of Jesus Christ with a single name, the son of man. In a single apocalyptic description, he sums up, an apocalypse of a revelation. People tend to glide over this on their way to the prophecy, but we're going to camp on it and dig into it because there's treasure at the end of this dig into the word of the Lord, and that is the Lord of the word who can come to us right now. Of all Christ's names, and of course, there were scores of him, of, of scores of them. I've got a poster in my office, one that you've seen, that just lists all the names in beautiful calligraphy. But of all Christ's names, there were two that he himself favored far and above any of the others. The first, of course, was the Son of God, and the second was the Son of what? 
yeah, man, which is precisely the one John, his closest friend, favored in Revelation 1. So we better listen to it. In the four Gospels, he called himself the Son of God, directly or indirectly, 20 times. But did you know that in these same four Gospels, he called himself the Son of Man over 80 times? The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. If you really listen and camp over this, the way, uh, to, to the way he sounds when he says it, you understand why John, at the end of the book that's about the Son of Man, said, Come, Lord Jesus. We need you. Maranatha. This is what Julie and I have been praying ever since we've been in contact with you, that he would come whether or not it was us that would come. There's a resonance to this name that goes so deep. Reminds you of what Daniel said, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came to the ancient of days, that is the Father, and was presented to him, and to him, that is the son of man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, and that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Whoa. How do you govern a church? No problem. The son of man upholds the government of worlds. So who are you looking to? You want the solution to what ails us? Just follow John's example at the end of the book of the Son of Man and say, come, Lord Jesus. Christ used this name again and again, this apocalypse of a revelation. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, mighty beings in the palm of his hand. I don't know about you, but I think we could use a few angels around here. And if that's true, then all we need to do is say, come, Lord Jesus. Say it with me. On three. One, two, three. Come, Lord Jesus. Son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. We need to learn forgiveness. God knows, especially at a time like this. And it's only in him that we can do it. So let's say it again. May, may it be unto you according to your faith as expressed by the fervency of your prayer. One, two, three. Come, Lord Jesus. The Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. We need godly judgment around here and not fleshly judgment. So pray it again. Come, Lord Jesus. For this reason, be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Oh, God knows we need him sooner rather than later. So one last time. Come, Lord Jesus. You know, you can't help but ask, why would he favor this name, four to one, against the next runner-up, the Son of God? Why would the Apostle John sum up the entire of the revelation of Jesus Christ by this single name? Well, in Bible times, they use this phrase, son of someone or something, in two very different ways. The first, of course, was the Jewish way of showing who your father was. And it wasn't just the Jews. That's why he called Peter Simon, son of, yeah, Jonas and many others. But the other way they used it was to show not your father, but something about your character, about your essential nature. That's why Christ called James and John sons of 
thunder because they were prophetic by nature. Barnabas, son of encouragement. He was an encourager by nature. And we could give many other examples. But the point is this. The Son of God, with few exceptions, has the first meaning. It tells us who his Father was. Son of God, only begotten of the Father. But the Son of Man has the second meaning, the one that focuses not on his Father, but on something to do with his essential nature at the core of who he is. Because by nature, he has always been God in the form of man, in the form of what we were meant to become and what in him we can be. With him we can be, despite of all our depravity. G.K. Chesterton called him the everlasting man because he's the man type. He's the archetype. He's the image in which we've been created, the original uh, of which we are reproductions. He's, He's the gold standard for all mankind. Paul says that to be made in the image of God among all the things that it means is summed up by this, that we're made in the image of Christ. And when he called himself the son of man, he meant that he was the source of man. He meant that he was the original and unadulterated uh, like essence of humanity who alone can save us from what we become because he's all that we were meant to be. As a son of God, he's fully God, which of course we can never be. But as a son of man, he's the fullness of all that we can be, which means that he, here it is, is the solution to every human problem. Phyllis Brooks, the great 19th century preacher, summed it up like this. From the beginning, there there has been a second person of the Trinity, the Christ, the man type. And in due time, it was copied and incorporated in the special exhibition of a race, the human race, which then degenerated and went off into sin. But in the fullness of time, he came and brought the pattern and set it down beside the degenerate copy and brought men's hearts to shame and penitence when they saw the everlasting type of what they were meant to be walking among the miserable shadows of who they were. You've been through some pretty miserable shadows recently. And there's only one who can drive them away. In this Lenten season, I think it's fitting that we focus on the Son of Man who brings us to shame and penitence. Because that's good. So, we have the definition of the Son of Man. Point one in your notes. He's our source and our destiny. He's our source in the Trinity And unbelievably, he's our destiny in eternity who comes to us as the solution to every human problem to guarantee the destiny. Like the song goes, he's all that I've come from, all that I live for, all that I'm longing to be. Is he that for you, really? All that you live for, all that you're longing to be. This moves us from the definition of the Son of Man to point to the question of the Son of Man, and that is this, who is your idol? Is he that for you? Are you really, really captivated by Christ alone with all your heart and soul and mind and strength? If not, you got some idol working against it. You know, we each have our own stories, our own idolatries, and mine is probably totally different from yours, but maybe the Spirit will convict you in this Lenten season of yours as I share mine. 
All my life, I've tried, I've tended to fix my eyes not on Jesus, but on other idols. And for me, it was different men that I had never met. As I told you a few weeks ago, my first father died when I was six, and I started to latch on to one, you know, father figure after another to fill the God-shaped vacuum. All these substitute fathers. When I was in junior high, for instance, I virtually dedicated my life to playing the trombone, like my first father, who died when I was six, used to play the trombone. And Bill Pierce became my idol. Any of you ever hear of Bill Pierce? That really dates me, I know. But uh, he's a famous Christian trombonist, a really fabulous one. And more than anything else, I wanted to be like him. So much that it hurt, but I could never do it. Then in high school, it was chess, and Bobby Fischer was my man. Ever heard of Bobby Fischer? Thank goodness I didn't become like him, given what happened to him. And soccer, Pele became my idol. And Francis Schaeffer, I met him a few months after I graduated from high school in Singapore. And he invited me to come study at Labrie at his community in Switzerland, which I did. And I'm telling you, God used this philosopher and theologian to change my life at a very formative age. And I'd watch his every move. And I'd cling to his every uh, word. And before you knew it, I so wanted to be like him that it hurt. In college, my ambition was to be a writer, and C.S. Lewis became my idol, and it became this open wound that I carried around with me for years because I could never become like him or any of them, no matter how hard I tried. Now, if your deepest passion is chess, you may have looked to Bobby Fischer, the son of chess. If your deepest passion is football, you may have looked to John Elway, the son of football. And he watches every move. Had to watch him on TV. Betrayal of idolatry. If your deepest passion is to be married, you may be looking to some future, you know, some future husband, some son of love, some knight in shining armor who's going to magically meet all your needs. God help him. (laughs) Your passion may not be people at all, but financial security or family, or grandkids, or some hobby to enjoy in your spiritual complacency. But if your true passion in life is to fulfill your created purpose in life and to become all that you were meant to be, you'll be captivated by Christ. You'll be looking to Jesus alone. Your your hero, your idol, if you please, your God, will be the Son of Man. And you'll be driven to your source as you fight to become like him, like the salmon going upstream, which isn't a bad picture of the Christian life. And your heart will ache until you get there, and a deep attraction will drive you, a fatal attraction, because you'll die to anything to gain him, like Paul said, who said he suffered the loss of all things and counted them but rubbish, that he might gain Christ, whether that be, uh, whatever your loss may be, whether that may be family or a hobby or financial security or even a devastating blow to your church family. Looking back, you'll reckon it all good because of what you gain through it. Guaranteed, pattern of the cross is the pattern of the Christian life for greater glory. So what's the application? How does he become our all? Well, in many ways, that's been the story of your last year. That's how he becomes your all. 
No other way. It's been the opportunity of this last year. He becomes your all through the kinds of things that you've been going through for this last year. That's his agenda. And the exact application varies according to who you are. And it's too early, actually, for me to say much. I need to do a lot more listening. So I'm just guessing at this point. But maybe, maybe you're like me um, in that you've got to stop fixing on men, whether that be pastors or friends or former friends, and turn to him like I had to do again and again. Even the godliest men I found can get in the way of faith in him. Even C.S. Lewis. I had to go on a C.S. Lewis fast for years. I didn't write, read anything that he wrote for five years because I came under conviction that it was, I was far more interested in what he said than in what Christ said. And, and I would argue with those who disagreed with Lewis as though they were disagreeing with God. I really would. It ruined a witnessing opportunity once with a, with a, uh, a woman because she, was, she didn't like C.S. Lewis, she told me, so I got off on why she was wrong. It deeply hurt a relationship with a dear friend in seminary because he dared to criticize Francis Schaeffer. I learned you could measure my idolatry by how much I was willing to give up for them. And by what I became as I defended them. And on top of that, I became like them in their flesh patterns. You be, we become like our idols. And I didn't even see it. Oh, there's so much here, but I've learned over the years that I can be loyal to a fault, given how the child in me latches on to father figures. And once I do, it's all downhill from there. Are you ever loyal to a fault? Again, maybe not a single one of you is. I truly don't know. And even if it is true for you, it doesn't mean you're totally wrong in what you feel or in what concerns you. But at least for me, at least part of it was like Paul said when he wrote to the Corinthians, to Christians who were saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Lewis, I am of Schaefer. He said, I am jealous. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. That is, I am jealous for you as he is jealous for you that you would be of Christ alone. With all your heart and soul and mind and strength, But I'm afraid, he said, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ alone. Have your minds been led astray? Application. Ultimately, it's this. Come, Lord Jesus, we need you. So crafty is our adversary, so wedded are we to our idolatries as we try to see things clearly that we can't do this on our own. We cannot attain 
to the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ alone on our own. The purity of heart through which we can see him and what he wants us to do. Can't do it. We can be so self-deceived, you and me. And so he has to intervene with his severe mercy, just like he did with John, with all of us. That's the ultimate application. The application is that whatever your part of the problem may have been, the application has got to start with him. In behalf of all of us, as he brings us to shame and penitence. And it's so important that he's built it into the church year during the Lenten season when that's what it's all about. As we'll see next week, he has to devastate us before he can delegate to us more of who he is. As I believe he's getting ready to do. It's like Malcolm Muggeridge wrote, the British journalist and apologist, and with this I'll close. What he says here, what Muggery says here, is much like what many of you have experienced over this last year. It's one of the many, many things that actually attracted us here, what you have experienced over the last year. He wrote, It is precisely when every earthly hope has been explored and found wanting, when every possibility of help from earthly sources has been sought and is not forthcoming, when every recourse this world offers has been explored to no effect, when in the shivering cold the last faggot has been thrown on the fire and in the glathering darkness every glimmer of light has finally flickered out, it is then that Christ's hand reaches out sure and firm. Then Christ's words bring their inexpressible comfort. Then his light shines brightest, abolishing the darkness forever. (sighs) Yeah, God knows. It's been so dark around here and so hard for so long for so many of you. And I can't guarantee anything, and there's a lot of things we need to work through. But I've seen enough now that moves my heart and stirs my faith to believe that a people dwelling in darkness will see a great light. That a light will dawn on those dwelling in the shadow of death. That the sunrise from on high will visit you. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what you've been doing around here through your work and through your word like the blast of a trumpet to ready this body for you to come, to awaken them for the break of day. And now, Lord, as the storm subsides, May they not fall asleep again, as even John had done. May we all put our hand to the plow, even as we rest in Christ alone. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. 
honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the suffering, and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.